everybody, Dan and Andy here, and we have two very exciting big announcements before this week's show starts. That's right, the first one is that we are joined by a very special guest this week, and that is the incredible Neil Gaiman. Yes, Neil Gaiman has done so much stuff. So he's written brilliant novels, he's written for the screen, Neverwhere, American Gods, Stardust. Uh, He co-wrote Good Omens with Terry Pratchett. He's done it all. That's right, and it's not even just the books, you know, the TV work as well. The Sandman was converted (sighs) into a show. Doctor Who, his episodes of Doctor Who is some of the best episodes of the modern era and then of course good omens comes to amazon prime and then they do a second series despite the fact that terry pratchett has passed away i was quite nervous it comes out it is brilliant so the guy just continues to deliver extraordinary goods uh, I, I binged it in one go by the way i don't know if you've seen it yandy it's it's incredible and so yeah we're very excited because what was he going to talk about this mystical man was it going to be ghosts was it going to be graveyards was it going to be the history of norse gods what was it going to be andy what was it? Uh, bagels? Bagels. It's bagels. The man loves bagels <laughs> and he needed to tell us about it. So that's why it's so exciting because Neil is a thunder nerd just like us. Anyway, that's announcement one. Announcement number two, Andy. The other huge announcement we've got is that we are going to be doing a live show really soon. We're going to be at the London Podcast Festival on the 14th of September this year. Now, it's sold out in the room, but there are still streaming tickets available and they're available for a few days after the show. So if you buy a ticket, you can watch it at your convenience. And there is a really good reason to buy a streaming ticket. In fact, there are two reasons. The first reason is that it's going to be our 500th show. We've moved Roman numerals. The last one we had was C. Now we're doing D. This is amazing. So that's the first big reason. Um, The second big reason is that we have a special guest. Now, in all the months that we've been having special guests since Santa went on maternity leave, our guests have been great. But there's one guest who we've been really excited to get. And for this show, show 500, our special guest is Anna Tajinsky. Yes, she's back. Yes. We're so excited. Anna will be joining us live on stage. So if you want to be part of that party as we're surrounded in giant D balloons, I'm so <laughs> regretting letting Andy organize the balloons now, uh, you can do that by simply heading to nosuchthingasafish.com slash live. You'll find a link to the live stream tickets for the London Podcast Festival. That's where we'll be. If you're a fish cordian, you can chat about it online with everyone else as it goes out streaming live. And let's make this into a massive party and a proper return for Anna Tashinsky. Yeah, no such thing as a fish.com slash live. Get your tickets now. That's it from us. On with the show. On with Mr. Gaiman and his bagels. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you this week from four undisclosed locations around the globe. My name is Dan Schreiber and I am sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray and Neil Gaiman. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Neil. My... Fact is that the bagel in the form that we know it only ever came to exist through Polish anti-Semitism. Now, I could have gone for something much more sort of easy to (laughs) chat about with bagels, like the fact that every year over 2,000 people are taken to hospital in America alone with bagel-related injuries. Neil, I'm going to pause you there. I want to know what a bagel... As in, I cannot think of anything less likely to injure me than a bagel. (laughs) And I feel like I would have to be misusing a bagel in some terrible way in order that I would need to go to A&E with it. I can tell you, Andy, it's cut 
cutting them open. It's finger cuts uh, from, finger and cuts. quite often people try and cut them while they're still frozen. Yeah. Oh, I do that sometimes. I do that. I try. I try and crack them. Well, there you go. Ones. Well, I, uh, yeah. There was a okay. report, 2008, bagel-based injuries were the fifth most common injury by knife reported uh, to hospitals. I read that, Dan. But did you see the? Did you see what the other four were? <laughs> yeah. What were they? Okay. So the number one was chicken. Chicken-based chicken. uh, cutting uh, would get you in. Number two, okay. uh, and I don't know if these are in the right order, but the other the other three are potatoes, apples, <laughs> and onions. Wow. And then you get and the that, bagel. Okay. Cheese comes afterwards. Cheese is very yeah. safe to cut. In America, though, they don't really. They just have to take it out of the plastic sheet, don't they? Oh yeah. Ouch. There we go. A bit of sledging <laughs> for our American <laughs> listeners about the quality of your cheese. <laughs> Nice try. But apparently it's so prominent that you would have these bagel-based cuts that someone went in and said the nurse looked at the cut and went, were you cutting a bagel? Because the, the horizontal cut of the laying oh. down of the bagel mm. would be, yeah, so similar to the cut. These are all way more wholesome than my interpretation of what you would end up in hospital with a bagel for. <laughs> so that's good. So good. So sorry. Medieval Polish anti-Semitism. Let's get mm. on to the real meat so of So medieval fact. Polish anti-Semitism because <laughs> the initial way that a bagel was made is it was boiled. And uh, there were laws enacted in Poland that forbade Jews from touching bread, baking bread in particular. So when forbidden to bake bread, they made their bread into essentially rings and started boiling them. And that was where our bagel begins. I got heavily into bagel making during lockdown. Oh. In the way that one does. You know, I, I had my little pot of sourdough fermenting away in the sideboard. And three times a week, I would make my bagels and just started getting into why you boil them. Uh, okay. Drop, drop so them the, in boiling okay. water and then they rise. They float to the top. And then and only then do you slam them into the oven. And I'm assuming those original bagels were not even ovened. I know that there were various sort of laws being enacted and lifted. At one point, there was a very nice Polish prince named Bolesław in 1264 who actually pronounced a law saying Jews may freely buy and sell and touch bread like Christians, which was incredibly kind of him. I think, I mean, when he says like Christians, I imagine there are still some restrictions on Christians just touching all the bread they like. I mean, if if I was running a bakery, I would not, I would not want people, no matter what their creed or denomination, to come in and just touch the, the touch stuff. Touch the bread. Yeah. I think the theories were like, well, a few various theories that are put across, but like one of them is that obviously bread was used for communion by the Catholics. And so mm. there was a worry that if the Jewish people were touching the bread, they might touch communion bread. Um, mm. There was also at one stage, the idea was that um, Jewish people were poisoning bread. That oh, basically that the anti- Yeah, it was basically the anti-Semitism of, you know, the Jewish people are trying to kill us and they're going to do it through our bread. Do you know what I mean? So... And the boiling could have been to show that it wasn't poisoned. You know, if you boil something, then that shows that there's no poison in there. So oh, there's one, okay. that's one theory as to why they're boiled. Right. Mm. That's so interesting. Did you guys hear about the, the Bagel Baker's Local 338? No. no. It sounds like a chat line, actually, but it's not. It's the, <laughs> they, were the, they were the group of bakers in New York in the early 20th century, and they were all Jewish. And if you wanted to get in, you had to be able to roll 832 bagels in an hour. That wow. was the wow. criterion for entry. That's a lot. Um, 
I know, they all had this special bagel muscle on the outside of their elbows. Like, uh, just pointing to it on the screen. You can see mine is not very well developed, but it's like it's like here. So it's just above your elbow. Or maybe just below, actually. Right. I think it's the one that's the same as if you open a lot of bottles of wine. You get an incredibly strong muscle there. Do okay. you really? Mine is, mine is tiny. <laughs> <laughs> you are the person who does that for you, Andy, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I've got an incredibly strong um, shouting at the butler muscle, but not the... Um, um, no, and, the, and the, so like they were, they were like crazy unionised. You wow. know, they, they had a really good careers, they were great pay, great benefits. You could take home 24 free bagels every day, every individual baker. So... You're laughing. And if they didn't get good contracts, they would go on strike and the city would have a terrible bagel drought. And then, sadly, bagels started to be machine-made and um, they, they all bought the jobs. So when did they actually come up with machine-making bagels? Um, I think it was the 50s. Yeah, it was. It was the late 50s, yeah. It was a guy called Daniel Thompson, wasn't it? And he came up with what he called an apparatus for making a toroid. <laughs> but he did say nice. in his patent that it was specifically for bagels um, because people had tried to make bagels using donut machines, but the dough was too too thick, so it wouldn't work mm. on the donut machine. So this was an improvement. And the one other thing that Daniel Thompson invented, this is so random, he invented the first wheeled folding ping pong table. Hmm. So what two things to give the world, like automatic bagels and the folding ping pong table? Oh, what would you headline with on the headstone? I'm not sure. Probably, oh. probably the automatic bagel. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd go with a bagel because it's changed more lives. So am I right in saying that a common filling for bagels is something called cream cheese and locks? Has anyone Most heard common. that? Yeah. yeah. You are absolutely. What's locks? So, smoked salmon. Yeah, it's smoked oh, salmon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The really interesting thing about this is that the word locks hasn't changed in sound or meaning for 8,000 years. Wow. And in the English language, we think it's the oldest word that if you got in a time machine and you went back 8,000 years, they wouldn't understand anything that you said apart from if you asked for some locks on your bag. Well, bagels might not have existed then, but if you asked for some locks, they would know what you mean. Isn't that amazing? And it's, that is amazing. It's a word that they use to kind of prove um, proto-Indo-European, you know, this old language that kind of spread mm. out in all the different European and West Asian languages come from they worked that out by using this word locks because it comes in old germanic in right. um, all sorts of different That's languages so cool. yeah. um, this is bizarre i have a i have a link to proto-indo-european and bagels that okay. is not the locks thing because i was looking <laughs> up where the word bagel comes from and bagel comes from a proto-indo-european root which is bleeg uh b-h-e-u-g and it means to bend if something so a bagel is bent into a circle so there um and bleeg also features in um bow you know when you uh, the verb to bow it features in bow like bow and arrow it features in bow like the bow of a ship mm -hmm. also bent uh elbow Oh, same. Okay. Yeah, and buxom also ah. is the other word that derives gradually from boig. So when you've so got you go. bagel's elbow, you're doubling up on the bow in yes. the descriptors. Oh, that's lovely. I love the idea that it's 8,000 years ago, you're wandering around proto-Europe, <laughs> and somehow you're able to persuade somebody to give you a roundish piece of bread with 
smoked salmon on it. Cream cheese, by the way. Yeah. yeah. The most famous type in Britain, at least, and I think probably in America, is made in which city? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. I'm afraid not. It was invented in oh. New York, but it was named Philadelphia because the Philadelphia area was so famous for making good dairy products that they wanted to name it after this area, but it was actually invented in New York. All right. Mm. So now you're saying American cheese is good, James. Interesting about face you've done on this podcast. <laughs> um, just very quickly, just while we were talking about the words for bagel, what's quite surprising is that up until 1951, bagel wasn't really a known word outside of the Jewish communities in the major cities mm. of America. So it was in 1951 that when the New York Times was writing an article about the strike that was happening, that they actually had to provide a pronunciation guide to show, so B-A-Y-G-L-E, just that's how this word mm. that you're now reading mm. is pronounced. It's quite amazing. My mother who is 89, whenever the subject of bagels comes up, as it doesn't as often as you'd expect, <laughs> always gets a little bit aggrieved because she's like, it's not bagel, it's bigel. B-I-G-E-L. And she says, and I know that because my mother's aunt and uncle, Rosie and Mick, owned the Johnny Isaacs fish and chip shop in the East End. And uh, outside the fish and chip shop, there was the little old Beigel lady. And oh my, my mother is still slightly put out about the fact that the pronunciation has gone bagel because huh. all of her childhood, they were Beigels. Mm. Wow. There's a book on the bagel that was written by a lady called Maria Valenska, and she finds an old pretzel tin and it's got Beigel on it as a name. And it turns out that there was a family in Poland called Beigel who were um, part of the Jewish baking community in pre-Nazi Krakow. And she thinks, ah, is that where Beigel first originated from as a term? Um, there is another Krakow link, weirdly. And this is like the, act the origin of the bagel. Because um, there's a story that it came from the siege of Vienna in 1683 when the Ottomans besieged Vienna and, and you know, there was to celebrate the the victory and the breaking of that siege, blah, blah, blah. It's not true. And we know it's not true because at least 70 years before that, in a Jewish Krakow, there was a statute saying you are allowed to give bagels to a woman who's given birth. It was a kind of fertility thing. It was a kind of, you, if the woman's given birth, you give her a bagel, give the midwife a bagel, any women or girls who are present at the birthday get a bagel too, you get a bagel, you get a bagel. Right. I think it's because it's ring-shaped. It sort of is a fertility thing. Mm. Is it like you know? what you were thinking about how you would end up in the emergency room, Sandy? It's not, it's not far away from that, Joe. <laughs> it's, it's pretty close. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that it's actually not that bad to spend eternity pushing a boulder up a hill for it only to roll down again every time. Sure. Wow. <laughs> That's how I perceive making this podcast. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's well, not that bad after all. You know, it's, it's like this supposed to be it. this yeah. eternal punishment, and you know, it's it's kind of fine. So this is Sisyphus, and it's the great Greek mythology story, right? Pushing a boulder up a hill, but can never make it up to the top as the punishment. That's right. Um, you never hear him complaining, do you? Or does he? Mm, it's definitely a punishment from the gods. It is a punishment. Look, this is something that I read, a study called Idleness Aversion and the Need for Justifiable Busyness which 
which was a study from 2010 uh, from the University of Chicago, University of Shanghai, and a few other places, uh, which I read about on improbable.com, run by our friends, that website. Uh, and it, the idea is that now that humans don't have to spend their day just trying to survive and run away from lions and collect food and all that kind of stuff, we need to be kept busy in order to be happy. And what they did was they did an experiment where people were in a room and they had to do a survey and then at the end of the survey they had to take their paper either to the front of the room or they had to walk 10 minutes to another place and put their paper there right and in both places they'll get some candy as a thanks for doing the survey now when they did that study most people just went for the box which was right next to them because why not it's right there but when they told them that in one of the places it'll be plain chocolate and the other place it'll be dark chocolate more than 50 percent of them would start going the 10 minute walk and the 10 minute walk back rather than just doing the short one and then waiting for everyone to come back from wherever they've been mm. so people would rather go and get the candy than sit around idly for 20 minutes waiting and the weird thing is no matter what you did if you put the milk chocolate in one place and the dark chocolate in another or you swapped it around people still make that walk and the idea is that people prefer to do something rather than sitting around doing nothing when they think they're going to get something for their efforts and it doesn't matter what the thing is that you think you're going to get for your efforts you're going to do something yeah that's very clever experiment design because otherwise it would have turned into a referendum on which is better plain chocolate or dark chocolate that's an unintended consequence yeah <laughs> and so what they thought was these people who did this study and they speculate about it in their paper is that people are just happier when they're given something to do and that sisyphus which they actually mentioned in the paper sisyphus would be happier rolling the rock up and down the hill every or up the hill every single day and then it goes to the bottom and he has to do it again and do it again and do it again mm. he would be happier doing that than if he spent all of eternity just sitting around twiddling his thumbs doing nothing and that's the idea yeah it's ma i mean I they, they mention things in the paper that's written in the science paper where they say homeowners may increase the happiness of their idle <laughs> housekeepers by letting in some mice and prompting the <laughs> housekeepers to clean up yeah i did read that yeah governments may increase the happiness of idle citizens by having them build bridges that are actually useless and then they put in practical examples where people have done this where they've shown that by stopping the idleness that happiness is hopefully increased and that's in airports and that is extending the the distance between getting off the plane and the baggage carousel so that you don't just get straight there and then you're idly waiting for the bags to come out that's the idea is that at least you're walking to something and you're using up yeah. the time don't know if that's true i think that one is apocryphal isn't it or, or not it's not absolutely nailed on because i think the claim is that houston airport did that because they were getting loads of people complaining because the plane landed a minute from the baggage carousel and then they had to hang around waiting and then mm. when they just switched the arrival gate and sent the bags so that people had to walk for the eight minutes, basically, yeah. before the, the bags got to the thing. Then complaints dropped. Um, so, yeah, Sisyphus. Sisyphus founded Corinth. I've been to the hill which he pushed the um, pushed the rock up, supposedly. Oh, really? Uh, which is on the outskirts <laughs> of Corinth. What, so did he complete the gig? No, but it's like so a story, mythical... isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. a story. So the people of Corinth say, oh, this is the hill. Or the, you know, yeah, the tour yeah. guide says, this is the hill which he did it. And Very cool. So I've disgraced myself as a... As a as a mythologist um, and as somebody who's written books on mythology and written stories set in mythological times and even had Sisyphus as a character 
the one place in literature he gets to stop rolling his rock is when Orpheus goes to the underworld and sings, and I've written that. And I just realised I'd completely forgotten what he did to be punished to do that. Is he one of the ones who accidentally... Did he feed the gods his son accidentally? Was he one of those? No, it wasn't. It's, it was Zeus, wasn't it? Yeah, he, he tricked Zeus. He, he did it twice. Basically, it was the second offence. I think that was yeah. the thing where the gods get really annoyed with you. Um, so the first thing was that Zeus had run off with a woman and um, Sisyphus had seen it happening and he snitched on Zeus <laughs> and so Zeus decided well I'm going to strike you down with a thunderbolt uh, and then he tried to cheat death by chaining death up so that he couldn't take him to the underworld and then a second time he tried to cheat death by That's saying it. that he needed to go up to see his wife because his wife hadn't done a proper funeral or something yeah yeah he'd already instructed his wife he said to his wife, don't bury me, right? This is going to be great. And then when he got to Hades, he said, oh, I haven't had a proper funeral, so you need, I need to go and punish my wife and arrange the proper funeral. And then when he got back, he just reunited with his wife. And yeah, said, uh, and they said, well, yeah. if you're going to try and stop, you know, dying and try and stop death in general, because he tried to stop death for the whole of the world, they said, well, we're going to make death really, really shitty for you. i, I got to say, it's one of the... It's, I think the punishments are really good in Greek myths. I'd never heard of this one. This is um, Ochnus. Have you heard of Ochnus? Maybe I mean, maybe, Neil, you've written about no, Ochnus. I don't know. tell me about Ochnus. So Ochnus' punishment, I actually don't know what the crime was, but he had to perpetually weave a rope out of straw. But no matter how fast he w- wove the rope, uh, the rope that he's already woven gets eaten by a donkey. <laughs> and I have to say, <laughs> right, that sounds like a sort of holiday activity to me. Yeah. You just have to weave some rope. Do you think? And you're fr- you get to be friends with a donkey. Well, it's not having your liver eaten every day, is it? Pecked out of you by a bird <laughs> while you're chained to a rock. Yeah. It's very much like parking offence level of punishment. Depends how much you like weaving, isn't it? Well, that's true. And there's always a thing of, oh, in life he hated weaving. So actually, <laughs> yeah, that was his least favourite activity. And uh, yeah, There was Ixion, who was a murderer killed his father-in-law, the first man guilty of kinslaying in Greek mythology, and uh, he got bound to a burning wheel. Mm. And his wheel spun across the heavens. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's, I would say definitely take the weaving ahead of that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I was trying to find out whether or not there are any modern examples of someone trying to push something up a hill uh, and finding <laughs> it quite hard. Uh, last year, 2022, a Colorado man attempted to ascend to the top of a 14,115 foot mountain uh, called Pikes Peak on his hands and knees while trying to push a peanut to the top of the hill using his nose so mm. so you can see Amazing. footage of this he has a mask on his face where there's a sort of black spoon that's attached to the front of his nose okay. uh, he starts at the bottom he's got the peanut there he's brought uh, multiple peanuts because it turns out he's not the first person to do this he's the fourth in colorado history the first person to do it was in 1929 and uh it took three weeks for that person to do uh but squirrels were stealing the peanuts and so the efforts oh, were quite dear. messed up so he has multiple peanuts that he took with him on this trip and uh, it took him seven days but he got there but is he going is he going on hands and knees yeah hands and knees yeah pushing up so painful <laughs> does he take the peanut back down afterwards that feels easier doesn't it <laughs> yeah kicking in the <laughs> or is yeah. there a miniature can of three previous peanuts that have been there and he's just adding to it oh yeah yeah like a hall it of fame sound, that, it sounds like a weirdly something there must be more going on in colorado if you're in colorado and you're listening to this please write it and tell us what what else there is to do um i have a couple more boredom things so th- there was a study in 2021 about what people are willing to do when they are bored 
uh, and whether it changes people's perceptions of morality or what you know what they're beha- prepared to do. This study found that if you ask people to watch a boring 20-minute long video, people are more willing to shred maggots in a grinder. The scientists oh. gave people a few maggots and they even named them. They called them Toto, Tifi and Kiki. And they left people. They said, <laughs> look, wait, I'm just going to pop out of the room while you watch this video for 20 minutes. Here are, your, here are Toto, Tifi and Kiki. Here's your grinder. And um, what? just have a great time. Um, no. W- way more people. Um, so it wasn't they everyone. Must have, sorry, Andy. They must have put <laughs> the idea into their heads that the maggots can go into the grinder, surely. If you leave someone with a maggot and a grinder, you're, you're only, you can only combine. <laughs> those things in one way so. and basically so it wasn't it wasn't everyone by a long way but 67 people who watched the very very dull video out of how many uh so, so that was the sorry that was the total so okay, 67 people watched this dull video of them 12 dropped a maggot in and there was a obviously there was a control group when they got to watch an interesting documentary um I don't know, maybe an Attenborough, maybe a Theroux, doesn't matter. Um, it was just one person out of 62. Well, it makes a difference, actually, Andy, if they're watching, like, a nature documentary, then oh, yeah, they might right. feel more empathetic towards the maggots. True. But all they might feel empathetic towards the lions. You know, nature's grinder. Um, <laughs> that's a... Yeah. That's true. Anyway, you, you will be relieved to hear that no maggots were actually ground up it was a fake machine they oh a fake was grinder. it wow that's yeah. funny i've seen one of those before in, really? um i did an escape room where i had to put my hand in a food processor <gasps> to get the key but obviously it was a fake one but they didn't tell you it was a fake one and like, oh, yeah. So you were willing to grind up your hand for the sake of <laughs> was, getting a clue? I was quite aware that we were in a controlled environment, that they wouldn't <laughs> let me do that. They wouldn't let me mutilate myself. So I was fairly certain that if there was a real food processor there, someone would come over yeah. the tannoy saying, don't do that. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you meet an awful lot of one-handed men around <laughs> yeah. here who were equally as certain. <laughs> I've done an escape room with you, James. It doesn't surprise me in the least that you'd be willing to risk serious physical injury to yeah. get a personal best. It's true. <laughs> Here's an interesting thing that I've been oh, yeah. reading about, and I don't know, it, it's quite complicated, so um, let's see Let's see where it goes. But I was reading about neuroscience, and there is a theory in neuroscience at the moment that the human brain is only built to solve one problem. Oh, what is the best way to cut into this bagel? <laughs> Yeah, what am I going to eat? What am I going to eat next? Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I think all of these could be subcategories of what these neuroscientists are saying. Uh, They reckon that your brain is created to make sure you don't have any surprises in your life. Oh yeah. And basically, everything you do, everything that your brain does, is trying to stop that from happening. And that's the reason why people like routine because they know that there's not going to be any surprises and it'll be the same all the time. But it also, in theory, explains people being curious and people inventing new things because what you're doing is you're slightly pushing the boundaries so you can test it and so that your brain doesn't get surprised if anything beyond those boundaries happens Mm. and i just find that a really interesting idea that you know this incredibly complicated thing in your head is only really trying to do one thing um, but it just everything else feeds from that i feel like what about so what i mean i feel like i like to be surprised by um, works of art, like uh, a book or a film, mm. I will like a surprise. But to be fair, I only like a surprise within certain parameters. Yeah. So if I'm going to see Mission Impossible 7, there is a set number of things which I'm prepared to adore, but um, if they introduce like a time travel yeah. thing, yeah, yeah. I will be unpleasantly surprised by that. It's like the idea that what you want when you're seeing a film is 
for it all to end in the way that you wanted it to, but not in the way you were expecting. That's nice. Yeah. You need surprise parameters, because at the moment where you can literally call off every beat in a film by the numbers, you start looking yeah. around for maggots to grind. Mm. Well, <laughs> whenever I watch an episode of The Big Bang Theory, the maggot toll is absolutely <laughs> astronomical by the end of the 20 minutes. Wow. It's been a while since you had a got The Big Bang Theory, Andy. Yeah. That's, that's a callback. <laughs> We're a I'm trying to show. surprise our listeners, but within, yeah. like, people know my li- limited range of references, and that's, that's one. That's half our listeners you've just offended. <laughs> I, I, was, I was on The Big Bang Theory. I was a guest star. I played... Uh, Oh, wow. I didn't mean that episode, obviously. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the one where no maggots went were harmed in the, in the watching of this episode. <laughs> what were you doing on it? It was uh, an episode about a comet, and it begins with the gang up on the roof looking at the stars, and one of them gets a note saying, oh, my God, Neil Gaiman uh, was in my shop, and he tweeted about it. And they're all sort of vaguely baffled because obviously they would have known. And then you cut to me in the shop trying to join their conversation and being rudely rebuffed and insulted. <laughs> mm, nice. Uh, it's, it's kind of fun. I like, I, I now have this sort of peculiar, tiny career of playing versions of Neil Gaiman in the shows, <laughs> of which the best one of all is still The Simpsons because I got oh, to be an wow. evil, murdering book thief who couldn't even, it turns out, couldn't even read uh, and who poisoned somebody in the final moment so it was kind of kind of i like him best okay it is time for fact number three and that is andy my fact is that beekeeping was only legalized in minneapolis in 2009 i knew this i knew this because i was a beekeeper a little way out of Minneapolis. I lived at the time in Little Town, an hour's drive from Minneapolis, and I would have sad, nervous Minneapolitans uh, come over to my house and gaze longingly at my bees and explain <laughs> that. Right. You weren't in the band zone. You were far enough out of the city. I was far enough out. I was was far enough away that my bees were entirely legal bees. What would happen, Neil, what would happen if your bees flew over the state lines, as it were, into anti-bee territory? Great point. I think nobody would actually have, you know, put little trackers on them to (laughs) uh, find out. But actually, I believe bees have a maximum five-mile radius. So I think my bees would have been okay Uh unless I decided to drive them to Minneapolis (laughs) just for a a day out. Come on, bees. We're going to see the world. I will show you the sights of Minneapolis. I'll show you (laughs) Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. I will show you all these exciting things. (laughs) Yeah, it was really strict. I think it was because it was an urban environment, basically. It was saying, you know, look, this is a built-up area you can't have just hundreds of thousands of bees around the place yeah. really? and even when they legalized it um, you had to get permission from 80% of property owners within 250 feet of your home wow that's a lot and if you live somewhere with apartments you could have, you might have to ask 100 different people's permission yeah. yeah and and you know get 80 of them to sign off on it i think they've slightly loosened up a bit since I then i suppose if you live in an apartment in a, a tower block you probably don't have much room for bees anyway no, I think that's true. And I th- also, it's, it's, it's a bit, it might be a bit cruel if you don't have the flowers, the flower space, because yeah. you can't yeah. just keep bees in a 
you know, in a, in a box. Wow. You can keep them in a box. Well, I mean, you do keep them in a box. Sorry. You have to, in fact. Right. That's, that's kind of the rule. Yeah. I was reading about Utah, the beehive state. Oh. Um, and in Utah, it is illegal to keep bees unless you have government permission. You need a license, basically. So just not any old person can have, can have bees in Utah either. Um, but their state emblem is the beehive. You might have seen it on the Utah flags and stuff. It's like that sort of... It's like... The skip. Is that what it's called, a skep? It's called a skep. They were made of woven uh, straw. They'd weave straw together and circle it, and that was what bees were in until Mr. Langstroth came along and invented the modern hive. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, and these modern hives, they have, like, um, things that you can pull out. Is that right? They do. The biggest problem with the initial bee skeps was that you had to destroy the skep to get to the honey. Mm. Ah, so... Okay. They didn't have openings, and what Langstroth came up with was hives with removable slats, exploiting the concept of bee space. Okay, so bee space. Can I can I just be boring for a moment? Yeah, yeah. I, go for it. I love bee space. <laughs> um, Andy, put those maggots away. <laughs> so the way that bees work is bees are kind of like people in rooms. If a bee sees something that is room size for a bee, which is to say more than twice the size of a bee, or twice the size of one bee climbing over another bee, it will try and fill it with comb. If it sees something much smaller, it will seal it off. However, if you get your bee space right, a bee will regard your bee space as a corridor and not build comb and so on and so forth. So. Langstroth's genius was to figure out bee space, figured out the exact size and shape of one of these um, yeah, pretty cool. hives that you put the slats in. Uh, but it was basically unpatentable. The moment he had discovered it and figured it out, every farmer with nails and a tape measure hmm. could build their own hives. And uh, so his discovery caught on immediately and hugely but yeah. he was not a happy man yeah he seems yeah. an interesting guy so he was a he was a pastor and he was going over to one of his parish members and he noticed that they had a bowl of comb honey and he thought wow this is pretty tasty this is pretty amazing and he said where'd you get it from and he was led to the attic where he was shown near an open window there was a hive there and he just immediately went this is what i want to be doing this makes me happy because he was suffering from bouts of depression there's quotes from him saying that he would for his books to be hidden away from him because even the letter B, seeing the letter B would just make him miss his oh, own bees and go into a sadness while he couldn't oh, leave no. the house. Yeah. So he sad. was he was deeply troubled. Happy, but oh, I mean happy <laughs> Earth Day to you. But quite That's what bad. an extraordinary character when you read yeah. into a story. And those um, those hives now, a lot of states, you have to use those, don't you? You can't use the old skeps. You have to use these ones. So I'm thinking of the, like, the filing cabinet where you yeah. like the filing Hanging cabinet where you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly Which was invented like that. first, that beehive or the filing cabinet? Because I feel like they've nicked from each other. One is based on the other, surely. Interesting. I don't know that, actually. Mm. Filing cabinet, early 20th century. I know. I mean, these beehives sound like they were early 20th century. Yeah. Unless this guy 1851 was... is when oh, he... Oh, okay. Uh, okay, okay. I think maybe, maybe first, yeah, yeah. Wow, so maybe the filing cabinet has borrowed from nature's filing cabinet, the beehive. <laughs> Which is not nature's because it was invented by a human. Yes, yes. Well, that in itself is thought provoking i think 
invented by a human, but exploiting <laughs> this 60 that's million true. year old insect who yeah, that's so is cool. astoundingly, you know, I mean, things like their use of the hexagon, mm. because it's the most efficient use of wax and stuff. It, that, yeah. I get, I get all, all excited about bees. Did you, did you get... Um did you get stung much? Obviously, I'm sure you had all the beekeeping kit when you were when you were doing it. I got stung about four or five times during the course of the six or seven years that I was actively oh, wow. beekeeping. I actually kind of liked that. I, I felt like everybody should have a hobby that could kill them. Mm. <laughs> and um, mostly, it would be my own fault. And it got a little more stressful. One day I got stung, and all of a sudden my hand blew up like an inflated rubber glove. Oh. And my breathing went all wonky. And Uh-oh. I went, oh, this is, that, this is that anaphylactic shock thing. This is actually, it's now happening. It's been primed. So I had to go and buy EpiPens for wow. future beekeeping, just in case. But did not get stung after that. Um, very recently, uh, a beekeeper who had a very distinguished job of looking after the queen's bees, uh, mm-hmm. was given the task of having to tell the bees that the queen had died. And this is an old tradition of when there's a notable death within a family that owns hives, that uh, the bees need to be informed and you need to put black ribbon on the outside of the hive and and so on uh, in order to show that there's mourning. But so the Queen has had, for the last uh, 15 years of her life, John Chapel, who was the official palace beekeeper, and that was his job to do, except for some reason he had no idea that that was a tradition. So on the day that the Queen passes away, an email pings up in his email box saying from the head gardener, have you told the bees? And <laughs> he must have thought that was in very poor taste, yeah, that joke. Yeah, exactly. But so, oh yeah, God. so he just, wow. he had to go around and he had to tell the bees, he had to say the line, the mistress is dead, but don't you go, your master will be a good master to you. And that was how he broke the news to the, <laughs> to the queen's bees, that she was gone. Yeah. It was a tradition. You tell the bees, not just of deaths, but important family news. Uh, mm. There's even a Kipling poem about it. Right. Did you tell the bees stuff, Neil? Did you just pop down and was there a benchmark of the kind of news that you would impart and then stuff? Ah, oh, they won't be interested. In it. It's too small, small a deal. <laughs> you know, I would never tell them to sort of casual internet gossip because I figure bees are above that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I would, t- you know, I love the idea of being part of the beekeeper tradition. Mm. So there were definitely a couple of times when I would tell bees things, and I just go down to the hives and say, right. <laughs> My son is engaged. (laughs) Uh, Can I just quickly say one or two things that are illegal in uh, Minneapolis? Um, So I've checked this for sure. I've checked in the the code. This definitely exists. Um, In Minnesota law, so this is the whole of the state of Minnesota, um, no person shall operate, run, or participate in a contest game or other like activity in which a pig, greased, oiled, or otherwise, is released and wherein the object is the capture of the pig. Or in which a chicken or turkey is released or thrown into the air and wherein the object is to capture the chicken or the turkey. Some there. laws, it feels like some laws are made out of basic principles, right? Like yeah. stealing or, or, or murdering or whatever. Yeah, and it yeah. feels like some laws are created in response to specific incidents which have gone badly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and you're saying this might be the latter. I think it might be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so pig, greased pig chasing is is explicitly illegal in Minnesota. 
Uh, and if you go on the internet, you'll see a lot of people saying that it's illegal to cross the Minnesota-Wisconsin border with a duck on your head. Okay. Uh, <laughs> apparently this isn't true, and it's because there was a thing called cotton duck, and cotton duck was a type of woven cotton fabric which comes from the Dutch for linen, which is duck. And cotton duck is a specific thing, and you weren't allowed to cross the border with that because oh. it was, you know, they were um, trying to help the cotton makers, and so they said you couldn't do that, but people mistook it to think that you couldn't cross the border with a duck on your head. I love those, those sort of industry-specific things. I, I, I remember talking to old people in Wisconsin while I was out there, and they were saying that when they were young, margarine could not be yellow. Mm. There, were, there were local laws that yeah. only butter was allowed to be yellow, um, but that they would sell margarine... And I don't know if this is true or not. They would sell margarine with little yellow colouring things, so you could <laughs> mix it together wow. and have a yellowish thing to put on your bread. That's so funny. Yeah, because they wanted to protect the butter makers in Wisconsin, right? And that's exactly. why they did it. Because I think margarine comes from the Greek for pearl, like the name Margaret does, because it had to be pearl coloured mm. in the olden days. That is very cool. I didn't know that. Me neither. I can also tell you that it's no longer illegal to have a dirty threshing machine or to impersonate a straw inspector uh, in Minnesota, but that they have been true in the last hundred years. To impersonate uh, a straw inspector. Finally, <laughs> comedy clubs around Minnesota back in with the classic straw inspector impersonations. Thank God. <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that the author Douglas Adams once put his back out while buttering a slice of bread. <laughs> so, this is a fact that comes directly from uh, uh, the creator of QI and is a friend of Neil Gaiman's, Mr. John Lloyd. He, a long time ago, wrote the foreword to a biography of Douglas Adams by a guy called MJ Simpson. And in the foreword, he just talks about his sort of day to day life. And famously, within the circle of friends, he was always mocked for the fact of once putting his back so out. So, do we know, was, it, was he really buttering the bread in extremely ostentatious way or something or heavy no. knife thick cold butter oh no, yeah it was it was just literally he was just standing there probably whistling oh. i don't know neil have you got any insight douglas was gloriously accident prone you know, i remember him once telling me about breaking his nose with his own knee playing rugby <laughs> i think as a small boy about the time that he first bought a fancy car with hitchhiker money he bought a porsche and on the way home from the showroom going round Marble Arch, he managed to total his Porsche. Um, oh. And I remember once turning up at some incredibly fancy event for Hitchhikers. It had sold a million copies or something like that. And his publisher, Pan, presented Douglas very proudly with a book on mushrooms. And I said, Douglas, why are you now holding a huge book on mushrooms? And it turned out that he'd gone to France for a gastronomic thing the week before 
and on day one had eaten the kind of mushroom that you were not meant to eat <laughs> and had not uh-huh. eaten anything else for the following five days. <laughs> I once read that if you go to France and you go to any pharmacist, they can tell you if a mushroom is poisonous or not. No. As in really? they're all trained for it. That's what I read once. I've never tried it. <laughs> We must try it. We must all try it. We must gather mushrooms and march into French pharmacies. In American pharmacies, I'm not completely convinced they will be able to identify it as a mushroom. It's like, what, is, what is that thing? So you, I mean, we should just quickly say that, Neil, you wrote a biography on Douglas Adams. You knew him, right? Um, it was your, I think, second book that you'd written, nonfiction book called Don't Panic. I did. Uh, it was called Don't Panic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Companion. And it also contained a lot of biographical stuff about Douglas, because there's only so much you can say about hitchhikers. Mm. Um, (laughs) And I got to know Douglas relatively well, but always from a sort of position of, you are a fancy author and I am a small journalist who first interviewed you when he was 22. So he was definitely the grown-up. He was so impressive to me. He'd had all of these amazing careers, like being a bodyguard, for the Saudi royal family. I said, what did that job entail? He said, well, basically, it entailed standing around in a hotel corridor, going out occasionally to bring back enormous quantities of McDonald's <laughs> and planning to run away if anybody with a gun showed up. <laughs> Um, oh, I found a I found a kind of related fact on that, which is so Hitchhiker's Guide was turned into a TV series, wasn't it? Quite soon after it was a radio series and then a book, it was a, a telly series. And um, one of the guys who plays a bodyguard in the TV series of Hitchhikers is Dave Prowse, aka Darth Vader. No, really? He's in it. Yeah. Wow. I have no idea if it's a speaking role or not. Um, <laughs> it's been a long time since I saw the series, but that's so interesting. I imagine it's not. I know. So was Douglas Adams very tall, Neil? That's why I read about him. <laughs> He was. He was very tall. He was uh, about six foot five, six foot six ish. I, I remember him saying that when he discovered how tall John Cleese and Graham Chapman were, he decided that he had all the qualifications necessary for comedy. Yeah, the reason I ask is because um, tall people are very susceptible to back injuries. That's why I was reading about. Uh, there's a few like uh, mechanical reasons for that, but one of the reasons is basically the world is just made for averagely heighted people, and so they always have to squeeze themselves into various places. But I read that he was six feet tall by the time he was 12 years old, Douglas Adams. Right. And that would be only three inches shorter than the record tallest 12-year-old in the UK. <laughs> That's so cool. Oh, did you find the um, the trousers shorts thing, James? No, This is great. That? So he was at school. He, he was uh, in shorts like all the rest of the boys in his year. And th- I think there was a point where he was going to go up to being able to wear trousers with the rest of his year. But unfortunately, at exactly the year that everyone went to trousers, he discovered his school tailor had no trousers in his size because he was so much taller than everyone else that wow. they, they, they just couldn't fit him. So for this key four weeks of his life he was the only boy in his year wearing shorts and that obviously is psychologically scarring especially if you're so much taller than everyone else i can't believe he had a school tailor in my school they used to just set fire to the bottom of your trousers (laughs) (laughs) i know it does say something about do you remember there's that bit of qi isn't there where Stephen talks about his school prep school tailor being called gorringe yes And it rhymes with orange. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I was I was looking in today. I thought I knew quite a lot about sort of the cultural impact that hitchhikers had on the world, and there were so many 
elements of hitchhikers that you'll find in pop culture so radiohead had a song which was called paranoid android which was named after marvin the paranoid android um you had the fact that the 42 is just the answer to the meaning of life question people know that sort of generally but i didn't realize that things like in the x-files fox Mulder lived in apartment 42 which chris carter said was a direct nod to hitchhikers you've got coldplay whose very first song on their debut album was called don't panic and they also have a song called 42, which again is a direct link. Um, the Allen Telescope Array, which is a, it's a telescope which is looking for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, the antenna has 42 antennas paying tribute. Like it really? just is seeded everywhere. They must have been going for around 40. They weren't going to have two and thought, well, let's yeah. add another 40 just to make it the right <laughs> yeah. number. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, I love just... the way that, that Hitchhikers has kind of weirdly penetrated the culture. But I also love that mm. those little bits of Hitchhikers that have changed with time. Like there's, there's that line in the opening of Hitchhikers about uh, how human beings were so primitive that they thought that digital watches were a pretty neat thing. Mm. And in 1978, oh, we thought that digital watches were a neat thing. We thought that <laughs> digital watches were miracles. We had we had the power of science suddenly appearing on our wrist, and it had numbers. Andy still thinks this, I, I think. Sorry, I, 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 I just want to say that a watch that functions on a wafer of uh, silicon is, is is amazing, that it that it counts the, you know, however many yeah, thousands of... Yeah, the piezoelectric um, effect, Andy. That's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, sure, the Swiss guys can make them... the cogs very small but <laughs> that's not the same as vibrating silicon I, I, look, I mean i think actually i think it was a red misfire for adams and i, I think um, <laughs> we should be calling it out um can i tell you guys about the um so obviously hitchhikers was his first book and he'd amazingly become friends with all five members of monty python mm. and you know he'd even appeared in the later series of python as a couple of times and wrote for it he was one of the and wrote for it writers, and he was yeah. he was only a few i mean he was only a few years out of school and university like it was amazingly fast to be meeting kind of comedy giants like that anyway on on his first book he got quotes from um all five uh, of the main members of monty python john cleese said really entertaining and fun terry jones then said much funnier than anything john cleese has ever written <laughs> graham chapman then said i know for a fact that john cleese hasn't read it <laughs> eric idle wrote who is john cleese <laughs> And then Michael Palin wrote, really entertaining and fun. <laughs> so good. That's yeah, really good. Uh, I was reading through the Oxford English Dictionary to see if Douglas Adams has been the first citation of any words. Oh, mm. nice. uh, and as far as I can see, there is only one word that he was the first person to ever say, according to the OED, of course, which is, you know, that's it, just what they found. Uh, do you want to have a guess? Or I... Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. yeah. Um... First of all, I can tell you you won't guess, but you can have a go anyway. Is it Slarty Bartfast? That's not no, in the dictionary. Yeah. Yeah, Golga Frinchen isn't going to be in there anyway. <laughs> no. uh, Frood. A Frood is a word from Hitchhikers. Frood. Might... Hoopy. Hoopy. Yeah, Hoopy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, um, it's actually not from Hitchhikers. It's from a comic relief Christmas book that he wrote in 1986. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the word is Todger. Oh, no. yeah, hmm. he's the first person in print <laughs> to use the word Todger according to the OED. Wow, that's um, mega. And before that, the word was Tadger. People used to refer to their penises as Tadgers, um, possibly a northern dialect for like a tadpole or something. But he was the one who turned <laughs> it from Tadger to Todger. 
Wouldn't it be amazing if one day all of his legacy is forgotten, all his books and just the one citation sitting in the dictionary yeah. is all we know him for. But the Todger guy, <laughs> that will one day happen. There's one thing, one of the big mysteries of Douglas's career for a lot of people is what what is behind the number 42. How did he come to the number? I remember John Lloyd sort of saying that they were in a garage together and they were just going, oh, what number should we use? But supposedly Stephen Fry says that he's the only person that Douglas ever told what the meaning was to and he's going to take it to his grave he's never going to say what it is so there was a kind of meaning behind it but 42 would always pop up in interesting places and before douglas passed away the hubble telescope was trying to find the defining parameter of the expanding universe and it got identified as 42 and for douglas that was just like ah look at it look at this synchronicity that i've managed to come up with this number which is the the speed of the expanding universe so that's the only time that we've got a sort of hint of douglas's interest in it having meaning but otherwise no one knows but i wonder if a drunken evening between you and Stephen neil has led to uh, the reveal i've never heard anything from Stephen. i remember asking douglas my theory you know when i was a 22 year old asking him for the first time i suggested that it might have been from alice in wonderland's rule 42 all persons more than two miles high must leave the court and mm. uh douglas talked about how traumatized he was by Alice in Wonderland and how terrifying he found it when he read it. But what Douglas said to me um, was that he was trying to find a number that didn't sound funny. Prosaic, not terribly interesting. 37 sounds like it's the kind of number that has interesting things going on with it. Um, 42, it's not prime it's not even an odd number it wasn't interesting it didn't have mm. anything about it that was interesting uh, you know because i think he tried a few in the 40s and, and settled on 42 as a punchline it's a punchline to the answer to the great question of life the universe and everything is and a computer has been cogitating on this for millennia and now it gives the answer and the answer is 42 and it needed to be a letdown in every way mm. to be funny 121 sounds like there's something going on with it 42 sounds like what that's not the answer but then the universe is a wonderful place and it accommodates us and once 42 was was let loose in the universe i'm sure the universe has been running with it ever since <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can all be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Neil. I'm at Neil himself, but I'm on Twitter less and less and less, so I'm probably much more likely to be Neil himself at Threads or Neil Dash Gaiman at Tumblr. Uh, or over at Blue Sky as soon as the rest of the world gets their invitations and it becomes a giant party. Nice. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's all head over to that party with Neil. And uh, you can get us otherwise on at No Such Thing, or you can go to our Instagram account, which is No Such Thing as a Fish, uh, or you can go to our website, No Such Thing as a Fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. But most importantly, make sure you head over to Amazon Prime because the return of Good Omens is here. Good Omens 2 
through, uh, written by Neil Gaiman himself. Make sure to check out that entire series. I've heard previews, uh, response. It sounds absolutely incredible. So really exciting. Do watch that. And otherwise, come back next week for another episode with us. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.